a Lifetime original podcast. This episode covers topics that include murder and violence. Listener discretion is advised. At 12.30 in the morning on September 2nd, 1987, Stephen Small answers the phone at his home in Kankakee, Illinois. It's almost one in the morning, so he's wondering who this could be. An inconsiderate night owl? A prank? Or is it an emergency? It seems to be the latter when the caller identifies himself as a police officer. He alerts Stephen that a burglary has just been committed at his business office, and the police need him there as soon as possible. Stephen throws on a red t-shirt and blue jeans as his wife Nancy rolls over in bed. He tells her he can take care of this himself, so she goes back to sleep. He pulls out of the driveway in his red Mercedes. But Stephen doesn't notice that there is a white van following him at a very close distance. Somewhere along the way, Stephen expects to see a police car, but instead finds himself alone and vulnerable. And the van closes in. Daniel Edwards jumps out of the white van. He pulls a stocking cap over Stephen's head and handcuffs him before throwing him into the back of the van. They take off down the street and out of town. Stephen can't see where they're going. He's terrified. They drive about 15 minutes before the van stops. He hears the car door open and the stocking is pulled off his head. What he sees shakes him to his core. They are in the middle of the woods, just outside of Kankakee. And at the bottom of a grave-sized hole, is a makeshift coffin. And inside this coffin is a car battery hooked up to a light, a gallon jug of water, and a few candy bars. Daniel commands Stephen to get in the box. He explains that if his family doesn't pay Daniel $1 million, Stephen will never see the sunlight again. I'm Quinlan Posner. And I'm Carrie Ipema. And this is Crime of a Lifetime. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So I think the question on everyone's mind is, who is this Stephen Small? Why would anyone kidnap this guy? And why does he have a target on his back? And what makes this guy Daniel Edwards think that he's going to get a million-dollar ransom from this guy's family? Now, a little bit about Stephen Small. We mentioned that he does drive a Mercedes. He also owns two properties. But again, that's a really big jump to then ask for a million-dollar ransom. But it turns out it's actually not Stephen's personal wealth that this kidnapper is after. It's the family money. Right. It's the small family because very ironically, the small family is a big deal. A big deal. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Stephen's great-grandfather, Leo Small, was the governor of Illinois in the 20s. And now his dad, Burl, and his uncle Len run this big 
media empire known as Mid-America Media. MAM, as I like to say. (laughs) They're the sirs that run MAM. And they buy cable networks. They buy newspapers all over Illinois. They buy them nationwide. Um, I'm sort of picturing it's succession vibes. Um, His dad Uh. is Logan Roy. He is I've never Roy seen it. No spoilers. Child. Listen, no spoilers. that's not a spoiler. Um, just know <laughs> that they're a rich media family, and they all work in media. They're a force to be reckoned with. So he's living an incredibly comfortable life, to say the least. They got a lot of money. And just to give you an idea of how he's living, his neighbor is the lieutenant governor of Illinois, George Ryan. Yeah, fancy neighborhood, fancy neighbors. They live in this, like, three-story Victorian that they actually restored themselves. Yeah, they won, like, a bunch of awards. Oh, wow. And they owned a cable company, and they didn't pitch the reality show of that? Wild. Wild. No, they could have been HDTV before it was a thing. (laughs) They could have been a DIY family. Oh, they could have. And that's called vertical integration. Hey, folks. (laughs) Why aren't we rich? (laughs) Using Throwing out terms like that. Uh, Speaking, though, of being rich, I I just want to say, like, I think that being rich, it hasn't totally wrecked them. They're, like, good people. He's known as a good guy in his neighborhood, and he takes really good care of his wife, Nancy, and his three sons. A year before the kidnapping in 1986, Stevens Media Company is actually bought up in a massive $64 million deal. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of cash. And it's the kind of deal that makes headlines. And with that, it brings a lot of attention to this family. Yeah, so somebody's obviously uh, could be reading those headlines and saying to themselves, 64 million, huh? Uh, How do I get me a piece of that action? So we're going to go back to September 2nd, 1987. It is 3.30 in the morning. It is three hours since Stephen Small first got that phone call. The phone rings at his home and his wife, Nancy Small, wakes up and answers it. And there is a voice on the other end and it tells her that he has her husband. Then there is a click on the line and she can hear her husband's voice. Stephen says, It's no joke. I'm inside a box grave. It's under a couple of feet of sand or something, like underground. He tells Nancy to contact their attorney and their investment manager and says to her, I want you to get one million dollars. God only knows how you're going to do that. He says there's 48 hours of air for me. So Nancy tries to talk to her husband. She tries to respond. But then she realizes it's not actually him. It's just a recording of Stephen's voice. And she can even hear in the recording the kidnapper threatening Stephen in the background, right? So it's like she's hearing Stephen talk, and she can hear the kidnapper in the background threatening him, telling him what to say. But it's not live, so it's Mm -hmm. like clearly this is Stephen's last moments before he's getting forced into this coffin, this, this box, and then buried. That means he's already underground when she's hearing this. That's crazy. It's also 3.30 in the morning. She's just picked up the phone. Like, do you realize how how long it takes to sort of, like, register what's going on? Like, she was just woken up out of a deep slumber at 3.30 Like, you'd be double-taking the warm exactly. spot next to you in bed of where her exactly. husband was. And trying to square that with a recording of him saying he's being buried alive. Like, but the point is, she doesn't know how Stephen is at that exact moment. 
if this air allotment thing is real and he's been gone a few hours, there's probably not a full 48 hours of air left at this point. We're getting closer to, I don't know, 46 or 47, right? Exactly. So the kidnapper then gets on the phone and he starts giving Nancy instructions, right? The first thing he tells her is that she should not call the police. And in fact, he'll know if she does. He tells her that he'll call her back the following evening for instructions for the drop-off of the $1 million, which again, thinking allotment, that's 24 hours into this. He has less than 48 hours of air. And then she begs him to call her back sooner because she knows every hour is precious, but he just hangs up on her. This is a crazy tactic on his part to set up a situation where a clock is ticking and then not use that first call to iron out details of getting the money. He just wants this guy to hang out in a box for a while. Brutal. I really feel for Nancy. She, I mean, she's got to be so terrified, having oh a full-blown panic attack. And instead of getting to, like, indulge that panic, she has to find the wherewithal here to just make the impossible decision and decide, what do you do next? I mean, the first thing she does is just exactly what Stephen told her to do. She calls the lawyer. She calls the investment manager. And she's like, here's the situation. I'm sure it's 3.30 in the morning. They've got to be waking up their wives going, this is the craziest call I've ever gotten. She's calling her family members. She does, of course, call the police. And they call the FBI. So quickly, there's a lot of folks involved. Yeah. And she also has to find people to take care of her three kids who are also at home with her. And let's be honest, getting that huge amount of money, getting that $1 million in that short of a time is not going to be easy. But she's got to try. Her husband's life is counting on it. And in the meantime, the police are tapping her phone and waiting for the next call to come through. I feel like I would be electrified and buzzing and panicked if I were Nancy and just going, tell me what to do next. I need a thing mm-hmm. to do. And I feel so bad because she just has to sit and wait after calling these people. There's nothing she can do. She just has to sort of be like, okay, police, get him back alive. Get me some answers. And like, yeah. there's nothing actionable. I mean, she's definitely instructing the team, give me a million dollars find my husband, but what can she do? She just has to wait. She waits right? four t- yeah, she waits 14 hours before she hears anything. Oh God. And at 5:03 that night on September 2nd, 1987, Nancy's phone rings for the third time. Her husband Stephen at this point has about 36 hours of air left and she picks up the phone and she hears Stephen's voice on the line again. It is another recording, but in it, Stephen says that there is a map that is being mailed to her, and it will lead her to a ransom drop-off. I don't know how you guys feel about mail, but this is this not what email. I want to be. This Throw it in a fax. I, I cannot be waiting for the post office. God love the post office. I can't be waiting for a mailed letter at this point. Yeah, snail mail? That's This is crazy. So this is insane. Listening into this call, the FBI are tracing it, and after a few moments, luckily, they find the source. The call is coming from a service station payphone in Aroma Park, Kankakee. So agents rush to the payphone, hoping to catch the kidnappers in the act at the scene, but when they arrive, the payphone is completely abandoned. 
So what they do is they set up surveillance nearby in case the kidnappers come back to the spot. And around 5.30 p.m., another call does come through, but this doesn't go to Nancy Small. Actually, a phone rings at Stephen's aunt's house, Jean Small, and it is the kidnapper, and he is pissed off because he says he knows that Nancy called the police and that her phone is tapped. And so he says if he sees any cops, there's going to be a shootout, a bloodbath. And whether he lives or dies, they'll never find Stephen. He does give Jean a final warning and says that if she f*** up, he'll kill Jean's husband too. Then he hangs up. So now Jean's involved and her husband... This guy has the whole frickin' family tree on speed dial. I can't imagine what Nancy and her sons are doing. I just, my brain keeps going to that and what I would do, and I just don't think they're watching, like, The Simpsons because it's this feeling of, like, at this exact moment, my husband, my father is buried in a box somewhere, I don't know where, struggling for air, and there's, like, a timer ticking, like an hourglass. And the kidnapper has all the control, right? Because, right. yeah, I, well, I'm like, they need him alive is the mind fuck of it all. They need well, him it's to just cooperate. Like, I think anyone who hears this feels claustrophobic. I don't care. Like, I, and, and also feels, I mean, I think it's like you feel for his wife and his kids just having to sit on their hands and wait and then you're thinking of Steven. Steven. Just, I, I can't, like, I can't I mean, when people ask you, like, what is it. your greatest fear, I'm sure in the top five of the world of everyone polled, like, Buried Alive would be in there for sure. And this is horrifying. And like yeah. I said, this kidnapper, it's, it's a situation where if he doesn't cooperate, Steven dies. If he dies, Steven dies. He's the only one who knows where he's buried. So it's uh, it's, so it's so crazy it's because so they're hard. so indebted to him, not just financially, yes. but emotionally. And they've already yes. pissed him off. Yeah, and it's so frustrating because, like, you don't really think, you know, I got to tell you, if someone were to kidnap someone, they're not necessarily the person I want to put my trust in. But they have no choice but to put their trust in this guy completely because he has their husband and father's life in his hands. But in these situations, nothing is guaranteed. Like, sure, they can give him the money, but who knows if they could trust him to reveal Stephen's location in time. Again, kidnappers don't come with a guarantee. Ugh. All right, so at 11.28 and 11.46 p.m. on that same day, the phone rings at the Small's house for a fourth and fifth time. And during this hour, there's basically only 25 hours left in the hourglass of Stephen's life. And once again, it's the kidnapper, who we now know is Daniel Edwards. Well, we know that. The police don't know that. And this guy is pissed. And he's yelling to Nancy over and over again, you called the police. And he's repeating over and over again, you f***ed up. You f***ed up. Oh, Nancy, she doesn't know what to do. She is begging him to just take the money, to let Stephen go. She begs to just go drop off this ransom where he had asked, but Daniel's like, no, it's not going to happen. You broke the rules, you called the police, and now it's too late. 
So while Daniel is on the phone yelling at Nancy, the FBI is tracing that call, and they trace it to another payphone in Aroma Park, Kankakee, which is a different payphone than the one that they were currently surveilling. But it was close enough that the police are able to find it before Daniel hangs up. And they're like, there he is. There's our guy from a distance. There's this white guy on a payphone. And nearby, they see a blonde woman in the passenger seat of a 1987 Mercedes. When this guy hangs up the phone, he gets in the Mercedes with the woman, and they drive away. And the police immediately start to follow him, but then they lose him. What? Yes, they lose him in this weird instantaneous chase. I don't know, but before they do, they do manage to get the license plate number. Which is like this a little makes beacon me of hope. So crazy! How did they lose him? It's not that big of a town, <laughs> but uh, like drive so much faster. Like it just, I uh, to have to. Oh God! To tell Nancy, like we saw the kidnapper get in a car, but we didn't chase him fast enough. I'm very confused. There must be. I, I want to be generous about this. There has got to be a protocol that I am unaware of that has to do with them not wanting him to know they're following, and they're trying to be like extra um, tricky about it or something. But, like, I cannot wrap my mind around or my stomach around this moment. Quinn, I don't think it's necessarily a protocol. I think it's something called a lack of resources. Kankakee, Illinois, is not a big town, right? I mean, it's a big town in Illinois, where I am from. However, I'm sure they don't deal with kidnappings often, right? And while the FBI is involved, it's like we don't have the resources, so I don't know what they're doing, but... That could be a contributing factor to it. I don't know. But the fact that they lose him is shocking. Thank God they're able to get the license plate number. Yeah, let's trace this thing. So the police, armed with the license plate number, run it through their system, and they trace the car back to a woman named Nancy Rich. Nancy Rich is 26 years old. She sells cosmetics. She's divorced, has a 9-year-old son who is being taken care of by his grandma. Notably, Nancy Rich is blonde, which means that she is likely that woman that they saw in the car with the kidnapper. And the address connected to the license plate is South Greenwood, Kankakee. I street viewed that, by the way, and it yeah, is of course uh, she did. Gorgeous, tree-lined street, cute lampposts, nice houses. For some reason, like I, I've never been to Kankakee, but I was like, wow, this is much nicer than I was picturing. Well, Quinn, it's been like almost 40 years. It's been like 35 years since this happened. I'm sure the neighborhood might have changed. You think it looked different then? Since then. Just a hot tip. Neighborhoods tend to change over 35 years. I don't know about you, but that's just my hunch. (laughs) You're so smart. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, Here's what I know. Time. Anyway, (laughs) quickly... The address is sent out to all of the police officers and all of the FBI agents, and you're not going to believe this. This is how small the town is, Quinn. Shortly after they alert everyone to that address, a police officer calls back, and he says, oh, I know her. I know Nancy Rich. And the address that you listed in this, like, APB is actually wrong. Nancy lives with her boyfriend, and wouldn't you know it, his name is Daniel Edwards. And the address is... Stratford Drive. So I also street viewed that, and it is across. I did. You know what? I got a lot of time on my hands. She loves 
Oh, well, we can't mention that. Well, she loves she loves a housing website. I love a general housing website. So I looked this one up. It is across the street from a, a cute park with a playground. Can't speak to whether the playground is a 30 years ago playground or a new one. Well, but, I will um, tell you how you know if it's old or new. Do you want to know oh, how I know? Me. Please. If the playground is splintered wood that you cut your hands up on with like industrial metal, then it is from like 30 to 40 years ago. But if it is rainbow colored or has like fun, vibrant colors, it is from recent, recent times. All right. It's a recent playground construction. But, you know, I, I don't really want to talk about how they live close to a playground. What I really want to talk about is how it is 200 yards from the Kankakee police station. So it is right under the nose of the police. Nancy and her boyfriend Daniel were were uh, plotting a million dollar crime, a stone's throw from the police station. Bold and across from a playground. <laughs> and across from a playground. <laughs> that night, police keep their eye on the residents, and outside it is quiet. You can hear a pin drop. Nobody seems to be home, but there is a white van parked nearby. And according to neighbors of the Smalls, there was also a white van parked outside their home the night Stephen was kidnapped. Which again, frankly, if there's a white unmarked van near you, run. It's never a good sign. Never. On September 3rd at 1.20 in the morning, there is now 22 hours of air left in Stephen Smalls' coffin. Nancy Risch and Daniel Edwards pull up in their brand new 87 Mercedes, which is the same car they were seen in by that payphone. And you would think that the police would see this car pull up. They'd all get out of their cars. They'd arrest him. They'd they'd ask them questions. They'd interrogate them. Get the answers you need. But no. They just wait and they watch. They don't have a warrant yet. They can't arrest them. I mean, it seems like they have enough evidence. In fact, it seems like they have plenty of evidence to go get a warrant, but they don't have it, so they just have to sit on their hands. Yeah, and it's another confusing part for me. And I have to say that I'm Nancy. You know what? I don't need a warrant. I'm a citizen. Do me a favor. Give me a call. Give me an address. I've got three sons. We've got four shovels. Let's go. Regardless of whether Nancy and I would have dug up the yard. They're not given out the address. So the entirety of September 3rd, 1987, Nancy and her sons are just left once again. Oh my God. Waiting. These are eight hands that could be shoveling. Here we are though. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The police believe that they know who has kidnapped Stephen Small, but it is now up to a judge to give them the authority to arrest him. Listen, I've said it before. I'll say it again. I do think because it's a small town, they don't have the same resources as a big city. So it's not like they're left with a ton of options. But this is like a pressure cooker of a situation. It's like this guy is buried in a freaking box. Every hour that passes on September 3rd is an hour less air for Stephen. Master Sergeant William Willis ends up making his case to a judge for a warrant in order to arrest Daniel Edwards and Nancy Rich. If the kidnappers' estimates about how much time there is, and we don't know that he was doing the math there correctly, but if he was doing the math correctly, if he's right, then by noon, Stephen's only going to have 12 hours of air left before he suffocates. But this fact does not seem to speed up the damn process because by the end of that day, the police are still waiting to execute this arrest. What does it take to get a rush order on this? Especially, like, what's so crazy to me is I know this is a powerful family, too. So, it, it, like, right. I mean, I know, you know, the it, Roy's it just would never wait this long. They would never. I just, it's shocking to me. And what's even crazier is by the time they get the warrant. It isn't until the next day, Quinn, September 4th, at 10.35 in the morning, that they are able to go into that house where they know they've been sitting and arrest Nancy and Daniel. This is 10 hours past the 48-hour deadline. And you know what's even crazier? It takes them another 12 hours before Daniel leads the police to the densely wooded area right outside of Kankakee called Witchert Sand Hills, where they find a small plastic tube poking out of the ground. It's I mean, despicable. It's despicable. There I must can't be no even... hope. I mean, I don't know when Nancy looks up and goes, that's it. Like, she's watching the clock. Uh, and we're kind of missing that, really, that moment where we don't know that it happened. But I'd imagine it's my husband or it's my father. I'm looking at the clock. And when they hit that 48-hour mark from when he called, what is that doing to you? Have you Do you start she mourning right then? You, you must she has keep to having hope. hope. Of course, there's no question that she continues to have hope. I can't, uh, uh, well, it's so heartbreaking. So this crew of officers arrive, they see this plastic tube, and they dig three and a half feet deep and hit the top of a wooden box. Inside this wooden coffin, really, it's six by three by three, they find Stephen Small, and he is dead. His handcuffs are broken in the middle, but they are still clamped to each wrist. His shoes are off, and his head is resting on a rolled-up jacket. When Daniel Edwards, the kidnapper, sees what's happened to Stephen Small, he cries out in shock because he knows he's royally messed up because what was once a kidnapping is now a murder, right? 
Just by looking at the scene, the coroner is able to explain the cause of death, which would, of course, be later confirmed by the autopsy. But it's not really a question as to what happened. The tube that Daniel snakes from the outside air for Stephen to breathe in, it's not like he weaves it all the way into the box like a snorkel so that Stephen can grab it and, I don't know, put it up to his mouth or whatever. Instead, what he does is he just kind of puts it level with the outside of the box coming out of the earth. So he's an idiot or he's a murderer. You know what? He's both is the thing. He's both. I mean, it's it's really beyond me that he thought that this would work. And I don't understand why, why such a extreme, over-the-top way of holding somebody hostage in the first right. place, to be honest with you. Where it's like he saw too many like movies or something and was like, oh, there'll be a ticking time bomb, and the time is ticking, and he only has this much time left before he'll run out of air. And it's like... Not if you set it up this way, dummy. It won't even work for a second if you set it up this way. I'm just, I'm, I was already mad at Daniel, and now I'm just outraged. Mad is not, yeah, it's not mad. It's just, I'm disgusted with this person. What a vile human. And so stupid. You're playing, you're, you're playing an experiment with someone's life? Yeah. Ugh. Like, it's like you didn't even test it? And if the whole thing is about money, then here's the thing. If you think of this person as worth the ransom, then you actually need to deliver the person. So why not have him uh, handcuffed in your garage, buddy? Like, what were you doing trying to do this weird, like, cosplay gravedigger thing? It's bizarre. what feels so, so crazy to me is that if he was just handcuffed in their home— they wouldn't, like, it, it. the police wouldn't have come in anyway. Do you know what I mean? Like, the police sat on right. their hands and sat outside the house. They wouldn't have discovered him anyway. Ugh. Well, unluckily for Stephen, he wasn't safe somewhere in somebody's garage. He was buried in a madman's tomb. According to the coroner's initial assessment, Stephen Small died within an hour of being buried. And that means that it is possible that Stephen was dead even before the first call Daniel Edward made to Nancy Small. When the tape recording of Stephen's voice played back over the phone, it is possible, if not probable, that he was already dead. On October 1st, 1987, Daniel Edwards and Nancy Risch are charged with three counts of murder and 10 counts of aggravated kidnapping. They both plead not guilty to all counts. And while they're in jail waiting for their trial, Daniel Edwards makes a pretty crazy demand. He writes a note and he pays his cellmate's girlfriend to deliver this note to Nancy Small, the woman he has left widowed. And in the note, he expresses condolences, but he explains that Stephen Small's kidnapping was meant to satisfy a blood debt. He writes, It was never meant that Stephen would pass away, but a ransom was owed for money you stole from us years ago. Ick. Yeah, this note is so weird, right? It's like he's trying to imply that he's part of a larger power, that Stephen was... uh, 
kidnapped as part of like some kind of big plot, he either he just wants to instill fear or maybe he wants to insinuate that he's like part of this larger uh, force of evil so that he can like share in the blame. Like I'm not the only bad guy out there. I was just a cog, you know? Well, also, it's just like, you know, someone once said, um, if there's a sentence with the word but, you should ignore everything you say before the word but, right? And if you break down what he says, it's like, he says, it was never meant that Stephen would pass away. But, no. It, it's just, I know I'm probably getting a little off topic here, but I, I got to tell you, it's just like, what's so gross to me is that he offers fake condolences to this woman who he left widowed to the children that he left fatherless and then goes on to sort of double down. It's just like, that's not how you offer condolences, dude. That's not how you freaking offer condolences. Yeah, he's trying to make excuses. Exactly. His point in writing the letter is to make an excuse for himself, to try to garner some kind of pity or to say, like, my punishment should be lessened. That's his reason. He's only in it for himself. (sighs) Well, also, just like what also is so gross and shocking to me is that he sends this letter while he's awaiting trial, which is to say they could then use this in the trial to show how little remorse he has. Do you know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. he is an idiot. I think that's what's so sad about this is he's an absolute fool. He's an idiot. And at the end of the letter, Daniel writes, it needs to be said that this matter will be resolved to our satisfaction, whether it be in Kankakee or in Arizona or wherever we deem it necessary to reclaim what we feel is justly ours. You know what I say to that? Bleat me out. Go fuck yourself. Fuck you. (laughs) Fuck you. You know what's not justly yours? Taking a life. Taking the life of a father and a husband and a family member. That is just... Like, again, they're going to use this at his trial. It's just, it's this so letter, stupid. This letter feels very delusional. It feels either intentionally misleading or delusional. It feels very JonBenet Ramsey to me. I don't think there's a plot. I don't think there's a gang. I don't think this is larger than Daniel Edwards and Nancy Rich. And I think it began and ended with them. Because here's the thing. They, they screwed up their plan, right? They screwed it up. Royally, And you have to imagine that if there was a whole team behind this, then somebody would have had the brains or the wherewithal to step in and be like, the way you're setting up this weird buried grave thing, it's not going to work. How many idiots does it take to screw up a kidnapping? Two. And it took Nancy and it took Daniel. And I think that that's all it was. And him him trying to say this is just uh, to further, to try to own the narrative. So Daniel Edwards' trial begins May 16th, 1988, and the court is absolutely packed. People are coming from all over the place to watch this trial. It is standing room only, and spectators are actually lining up more than an hour early to make sure that they can get a seat. And what's also really wild about this is just like the the sensationalism around it, right? Mm -hmm. At the actual trial... There is the box that Stephen Small was buried in that is put on display, which I'm just thinking as like a criminal defense attorney, I can't imagine that happened without a fight. Right. Right? Like the criminal defense attorney had to be like, you can't put that box on display. Yeah, but fortunately, they were able to. 
got his work uh, cut out for him for sure. Um, and is trying to shield Daniel from the charges. But in doing so, it becomes this really awkward thing where he actually starts like arguing with himself. Because on the charge right. of kidnapping, he's like, oh, well, there's no evidence that Daniel's the one who committed this kidnapping at all. And then that's just going to be really, really hard to square with his argument against the murder charge, right? Right. He even goes on to claim that Daniel Edwards did not clearly intend to murder Stephen Small. And part of the evidence he uses to support that claim, it's the food and water and light that he put down in the box with him. And why would he feed an air tube down to the box if he wanted Stephen to suffocate? Exactly. You're totally right. It's like, how do you square that argument? It's like, he didn't do it. But if he did, he didn't mean to. But he didn't do it. But he might. It doesn't make sense. Why would he build a box and so generously fill it with food and water if he didn't kidnap Stephen Small? Yeah, it's very circular. Um, I think I, I think he needed to pick a lane on that. And in the evidence against Daniel Edwards, there's witness testimony putting him at that payphone, and the police had traced the kidnappers' calls to the payphone that they saw him at. I mean, that's pretty tricky to dispute. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They also have witness testimony from neighbors who actually saw Daniel building the box during the summer of 1987. And it wasn't like they just, like, saw him over the fence. There was a full conversation in which he bragged about it. According to the reporting from the Chicago Tribune, one of his neighbors asked Daniel, hey, what the hell are you building, a lemonade stand? And the witness says that Daniel replied, I must be doing a pretty good job if you can recognize what it is already. Ugh. It is not, in fact, a lemonade stand. It's like a weird game of, guess what I'm building? Yep, you got it. Everything but a coffin. Finally, prosecutors have the cassette tape Daniel forced Stephen Small to record at the burial site. And they found that tape inside Daniel's home. And it was unraveled. He'd like pulled it all out, but it doesn't matter. They're able to recover it. And in the background of the recording of Stephen, you can hear Daniel saying, I ain't gone this far for nothing. If she don't pay the money, you're dead. I want to get that through your head, and I ain't coming to dig you up. Which, I don't know, sure sounds to me like there was some intention to kill. I think we're all on the same page. This guy is just an absolute dunce. The way he got rid of that evidence was by unraveling the cassette. It's Are you kidding me? Yeah. Are you kidding me? And that comes through clearly at the trial. At every turn, he failed, and then someone else paid the price. And on May 23rd, 1988, after only a week of trial, Daniel Edwards is found guilty on all counts. And Nancy Risch, I know you're wondering about her, the accomplice. She's tried, and it doesn't get uh, as much attention as Daniel's trial, Um Clearly, she wasn't the one pushing the kidnapping, but in the end, she also is found guilty on all charges and sentenced to life in prison. Daniel Edwards is eventually sentenced to death. We're going to jump forward 15 years. It is 2003, and Daniel Edwards is still alive and on death row. He is awaiting his execution date. And at this point, by the order of the governor of Illinois... 
George Ryan, their neighbor, he has the opportunity to ask for clemency. It is a part of George Ryan's platform at the end of his term to grant clemency to all death row um, inmates because he does not believe in the death sentence. So it's his policy that if these death row inmates write in, their sentences will be commuted to life in prison. In a statement, the governor wrote, Our capital system is haunted by the demon of error. Error in determining guilt and error in determining who among the guilty deserves to die. Because of all these reasons, today I am commuting the sentences of all death row inmates. I didn't know 10 days ago I would do this. This blanket commutation, as I said earlier, I realize will draw ridicule, scorn, and anger. I sought this office, and even in my final days of holding it, I cannot shrink from the obligations to justice and fairness that it demands. In a letter, Daniel Edwards denies the opportunity for clemency. He writes in response to this that he would prefer to stay on death row. But the governor had committed to commuting all sentences to life in prison, so Daniel was in fact included in this blanket clemency. Governor Ryan does acknowledge Daniel's wishes as proof that life in prison is a better punishment than the death penalty. I I personally agree with him, but the family of Stephen Small doesn't. Nancy Small calls his statement a real slap in the face, and she adds that she would like George to personally handwrite a letter to each of her three boys, telling them why he decided to have their father's murderer taken off death row. In 2017, Nancy Risch then petitions the court for a resentencing hearing. She claims that there was evidence of domestic violence that she endured that was left out of her case. In the petition, her attorneys argue that Daniel Edwards threatened to kill her and her son if she did not help him kidnap Stephen Small. She claims that she was forced to drive him without knowledge of any kidnapping plan. Her sentence is reduced from life to 70 years for the murder and a concurrent 30 years for kidnapping. In February of 2022, 60-year-old Nancy Reich is released on parole. And she does have to wear an ankle monitor for three years, but then she'll be free. She'll be a free woman. And according to reports, the small family didn't object to this reduced sentence. Nancy has always maintained her innocence. Um, you know, I do wonder why the Smalls had that feeling uh, towards her. I mean, I, I do understand completely why they had that feeling toward Daniel. And I just don't know a ton about what might have got brought to light in the way of domestic violence. But it's really interesting to me that Stephen's wife felt so strongly that Daniel stay on death row, but did not feel strongly about Nancy being released. Well, maybe there were some answers in the trial that I'm sure the family attended both. I mean, I think even in our telling of it, I think it's very clear that who was the idiot mind behind this, which was Daniel Edwards. He communicated with the family. He led them to where he was. He was the one building this, you know, coffin. It's it's like Nancy Rish was there, um, and I think she is culpable, right? Um, but n- it sounds like it, it was his idiot plan. It was his – he was the idiot mind behind this. Yeah, it's just so stupid, the whole thing. It, like, so tragic. And, 
you know, it, it's kind of a strange story because here you are and your heart is racing. Um, even even you and I who, who knew how it would end, I feel like mm-hmm. we're getting really worked up thinking about the time it is taking to bring this man some help to find this coffin, you know. And in the end, it none of it mattered, actually. It didn't matter that they were 24 hours late because they were really days late. And it's it's heartbreaking. And I think, you know, Stephen Small left behind a wife and three sons. And it's just so heartbreaking that this level of idiocy caused them to lose someone they love so dearly. And my heart breaks. My heart breaks. And they for didn't that get the justice that they wanted, even even no. though um I I did like what uh the governor wrote about the clemency uh that he issued. Yeah. They didn't get the justice that they wanted. So it's just, it's a really sad story all around. You're never going to get justice because at the end of the day, you just want your loved one back. And it's so sad. It's so sad. Catch more gripping stories pulled straight from the headlines with all new original series and movies on Lifetime and stream on the Lifetime app or on demand. Check out mylifetime.com to find out what's airing because it might just be the case we talk about next. We used many sources in our research for today's episode. Among the most helpful were the following. An article from the Associated Press entitled Member of Prominent Media Family Buried Alive, Found Dead by Sarah Nordgren. A 1991 ruling by the Supreme Court of Illinois in The People versus Edwards. And an article from the Chicago Tribune entitled Death Penalty Sought in Heirs' Death by Andrew Fegelman and John O'Brien. Special thanks to the extensive reporting by the Chicago Tribune. If you'd like to learn more about this story, we highly recommend you check out these sources. Crime of a Lifetime is produced by Tanner Robbins. Our associate producers are Hazel May and us, Quinlan Posner and Carrie Epima. Our sound designer and editor is Arlen Ginsberg. Our senior producer is John Thrasher. McKamey Lynn is our supervising producer, and Jesse Cass is our executive producer. If you like what you hear on the show, please subscribe, rate, and review Crime of a Lifetime on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Copyright 2023, a Television Networks, LLC. All rights reserved. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.